0: now on to the show.
1: Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 17th episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the $3.3 trillion of greed, fear, and inertia. With me is Paul Offit, MD, the author of Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far, the book is published by HarperCollins. Paul is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Previous books include Pandora's Lab, Bad Faith, Deadly Choices, Do You Believe in Magic? and Autism's False Prophets. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. So to begin, uh, just briefly, what is Overkill about?
0: So it's about those 15 situations in modern medicine for which there is abundant scientific evidence that we shouldn't be doing something, but we do it anyway, like treating fever or finishing the antibiotic course or putting in heart stents. I think these people may be surprised by this, but actually it's all about the data. And there is abundant scientific evidence that supports this point of view. Okay.
1: Okay. Now, you know, you're taking on a lot of vested interests here, big industry. Uh, I think that takes courage, quite honestly. I'm curious where the motivation comes from, because not everybody would step up to the plate in the same way, I believe. Actually, it doesn't take any courage to
0: stand up to the (laughs) pharmaceutical industry. It takes courage to stand up to the anti-vaccine activists. Those Uh, people, you know, uh, they're they're much more frightening than the pharmaceutical industry. (laughs) So I mean, if you really want to, if you really want to be courageous, sort of see what your life, what happens to your life when you stand up to a politically connected, lawyer-backed group of angry parents. That that's that's much different.
1: Okay, fair enough. I do have to ask though. On Wikipedia, there's a reference to your father being a shirtmaker in Baltimore, and that you did attend his uh, Salesforce meetings just occasionally, um, and there were some tall tales told and so forth. Uh, to what degree, if any, was that a bit of a uh, Point of reference for you in, in jumping into the medical field.
0: Yeah, it was it was sort of what struck me about those sales meetings, and I would go every six months, mostly for the food. But I mean, I, those guys were great. I mean, they were funny. They they sort of sold themselves. But I, I thought that was never for me. I, the the I like the the meritocracy of science. You know that. That you succeed if you can do good studies, publish good data, uh, that it really doesn't have anything to do with your personality necessarily. It was just about how, um, how rigorous, you, rigorous you were as a scientist. And, and uh, I think that's why I was drawn to that, just because I knew that I could really never be the salesman that my father and, uh, and all his sales force was.
1: Okay, well, fair enough. I, I, I like high standards, and I, I like, I, I guess I'll call you a reformer, if nothing else. Uh, I'm from Minnesota, after all, as I told you, there's a short story by Escott Fitzgerald where someone's at a party and says, who's running for governor? Oh, an, another Swede, another reformer is the answer, and the person derisively says, what's there left to reform, uh, Minnesota being what it often is in terms of high standards in politics, at least. So, um, and we have the Mayo Clinic to boot. Let's talk about the industry. Um, for doctors, I mean, what are the motivations? What's the conundrums that they're facing as they try to uh, handle uh, you know, prescribing, not over-prescribing the, the options out there? Well, I, th- I think, take the antibiotics
0: as an example. Um, physicians want People to like them. They want their parents and patients to like them, and meaning the parents of the children to like them, and the patients. And and there is a certain pressure when someone comes in, let's say with a viral infection, which is not going to be treated with antibiotics, to prescribe antibiotics because you know people doctors get rated by their patients, and they they tend to be rated higher if they do what they're they feel they're being asked to do. In this case, write a prescription. Um, so the tail wags the dog a little bit there. It's much harder for the doctor to say, look, you, you don't need an antibiotic, here's why. And then the parent says, well, you know, the last time I did this this one, I gave this one and it worked, meaning that, the, that he got better. And the doctor then says, well, it would have gotten better anyway, but the parent's convinced. So they just write the prescription. The problem is we've gotten to the point now where, where we've taken our first steps into the post-antibiotic era where, um, you know, there are some pa- patients it's happened at our hospital that are treated with bacteriophages, meaning viruses that kill bacteria, which brings us back 100 years ago. I mean, that's what we did 100 years ago before there were antibiotics. And another problem is that you really don't need to finish the antibiotic course, which is a chapter in this book because if you look at, 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 uh, at that as compared to sort of other things we do. So for example, if you have pain, um, you're treated till your pain's gone. If you have asthma, you're treated to, with bronchodilators till your wheezing's gone. But if you have, let's say, a kidney infection and you have back pain and you have bacteria in your urine and you have fever and you have white blood cells in your urine, and then you take an antibiotic and in three days you're better, your back pain's gone, your fever's gone, the bacteria's not in your urine anymore, the white cells are gone, why are you still treating Why do you have to pick this arbitrary length of time at the beginning of illness if the patient is better? So I think we're moving more now to, if you will, personalized medicine there as as we're doing studies that show you don't need to treat nearly as long as we thought we needed to treat it for most of these, if not all of these infections
1: okay and that's assuming that uh the the doctors are keeping up to date on the data and where the discussion is moving i bring that up because i've done a lot of work actually as a market researcher uh, with a number of clients who are in the pharmaceutical industry and i can tell you at least one case where uh, my client was pfizer they were out testing doctors. And I could tell pretty clearly the doctors were confused because this stuff is hard to keep track of. There are, you know, side effects. There's many medicines sometimes involved in a treatment plan uh, and just the onslaught of information coming out. So, uh, you know, when we were talking about this segment, inertia was one of the really important things to bring into this conversation. Uh, Can you maybe take that angle on a bit more involving the doctors? Sure. No, I think you know doctors
0: like to believe they've been helping their patients. And if they've been doing something in a certain way for a certain period of time, and they believe that it works, it's really hard to get them off the notion that, that really it wasn't necessary. I mean, somebody could say, well, you know, I usually treat kidney infections for 10 days and it always works. And, and if you say, look, but here's data that show clearly you only need to treat for five days. Um, you don't need to treat that long. Um, you know, They may be more resistant to it because they've sort of become married to this way of thinking. So it's, it's, inertia is probably the biggest problem.
1: Okay, well, it sounds like cognitive dissonance is in there as well a bit because they want to believe one thing, even if that, uh, even if the field has shifted a bit more. How about with the the pharmaceutical industry and and uh, all the other providers of services and machinery and so forth? What are their motivations, and where where should be the watchouts? Well, the motivation of the
0: pharmaceutical industry is to sell products. So, I mean, for example, there there is abundant evidence that that fever is. Part of the, the adaptive part of your immune response. There's now excellent laboratory and clinical evidence that when your temperature is higher, um, why is it that we all do that? Why is it that everything that can walk small, swim, <laughs> crawl, or fly on this planet can make fever? I mean, is it to keep pharmaceutical companies in business? Is that why we do it? Or is it because there is some selective advantage for, our, for us to have fever? And now we know the answer. The answer is your body wants your temperature to be higher because your immune system works better at a higher temperature. Neutrophils or white blood cells, which are the cells that make up pus, actually travel to sites of bacterial infection better and ingest and kill bacteria better at a higher temperature. B cells, which make antibodies, make antibodies more efficiently and with greater affinity at a higher temperature. So so then the question becomes, well, that's true, then if you treat fever does it prolong or worsen illness? And the answer is yes, again and again and again. But it's gonna be very hard not to, to get people to treat fever because they assume that when your temperature's down and you feel better because you do, because fever can cause things like headaches and chills and muscle aches. Um, and so they assume, okay, then, then the infection's better, but that's not true. and. Uh, there's much evidence to show that probably the, for me as a pediatrician, the, the, uh, the study that really first caught my eye that was amazing to me was children who had chicken pox. And what they found was that people who, they either treated prospectively, randomly, children with uh, Tylenol or didn't treat them with Tylenol. And they found that the children who were treated with Tylenol actually shed virus for longer and it took a longer time for them to, to heal their blisters than if they were never treated with, with Tylenol. So that was the first of now many studies that have shown antipyretics, you know, basically weaken your immune system.
1: Okay. So we're, this is a really hard, clean look at what's the efficacy going on. For the patient, they, they don't have the same vantage point, the same knowledge necessarily. What would you say are the emotions that are buffeting them as they go through these, these experiences? Well, I think parents, parents and patients
0: want the magic medicine. They want that thing that makes it all go away. And I think the, the, that's the prescription pad. You know, the prescription pad contains that magic medicine that's going to make it all go away but sometimes doing nothing is doing something and if you look for example at the heart stent story you're better off not getting a heart stent than getting one because medical therapy works just as well if not better and and you know the heart stents have a morbidity and a mortality you know there's it's not a trivial procedure so if you can avoid it avoid it the same thing's true really of Arthroscopy, knee surgery for, you know, people who have meniscal, tear, meniscal tears, who have, who have uh, arthritis for other reasons. I mean, if you look at the studies where they've done again, where people go to the operating room and they either get the washout procedure or they, they, they think they get the washout procedure because they hear splashing and, you know, uh, instruments being moved around, it doesn't make any difference than knee replacements. You know, it, it really, um, you, you do better with just sort of generally exercise therapy. So it's, it's more of this book, I guess, is more of like a hands-off book, that we we do too much sometimes. And so I'm trying to get us to do less.
1: Well, I think it was in the, the cancer prevention chapter, and the book, by the way, for all listeners, is an excellent book with an absolute wealth of, of uh, examples, case studies, results from studies, all, all available for the reader. One of the things I thought was a really nice handle, I'm pretty sure, again, it was in the cancer prevention chapter. You said that patients often can fall into one of three categories, if I recall correctly. They can be birds where the condition has gone rather quickly. Uh, they can be turtles that are going to actually die with the condition. And they can be rabbits. And it was the rabbits that should be treated first and foremost. Can you maybe uh, elaborate on that analogy? Because I, I thought it was a really handy one. Yeah, so it
0: was Gilbert Welch, actually. So I guy stole his idea. But he... Um, he's a, a cancer doctor who, who used the barnyard analogy. So he, he basically argued there's three different kinds of cancers. There's the birds, where when it, if you open the barn door, the birds out before you can do anything. That's the cancer to Dr. Welch that is gonna kill you no matter what you do. Then there's the turtle. The turtle is so slow moving that it doesn't matter when you close the door. This is a, this is a cancer that you're going to die with and not from. And then there's the rabbit. The rabbit is the one that, if you close the door quick enough, you'll actually catch the rabbit. So that's the cancer that, if you treat it early enough, you can actually save someone's life. What has been shown now, I think, for both prostate cancer and thyroid cancer. So you know, there's prostate cancer screening programs like uh, PSAs. Um, there's thyroid cancer screening programs like ultrasounds. Those screening programs have done nothing to to lengthen the life of the American male in the case of prostate cancer or the American female, which is primarily the people that are affected by thyroid cancer, which is to say those two cancers are primarily birds and turtles, which is to say you're gonna die with them, you're gonna die with them if they're turtles, and you're gonna die from them no matter what you do. So therefore, forget it. Breast cancer is a little um, more subtle. It used to be that when mammography first came into being it saved lives, clearly. I mean, that, there was a lot of rabbits there. But what's happened is as time has gone on and we're much better at treating late-stage cancers, the value of mammography has decreased. It hasn't been eliminated. There is still some value, but there's a lot of false positives with, uh, with mammograms that scare people. And they have to live with that emotional burden that comes with thinking that they have a cancer that they really don't. So that, that's a more subtle chapter about how to think about uh, breast cancer screening programs. But there are some groups that don't recommend breast cancer screening programs, interestingly.
1: Okay. So you're, you're touching on a few of these different 15 common medical interventions. I want to make sure that we get around to some of those that you thought were the most startling or affect the most people, uh, create the most damage by staying the course right now. Um, so I, I'm basically gonna open it to you. Where would you like to go among these 15 common things? What do you wanna make sure you can get across to the listeners?
0: I think the, the, um, the one that's the biggest hoax frankly is vitamin D. Um, there, there was this notion born years ago that vitamin D does a lot of things. It prevents cancer, it treats cancer, it prolongs your life, it decreases the incidence of heart disease, it decreases the incidence of fractures, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it became an industry really to get vitamin D levels and to then treat people, if you will, with high doses of vitamin D. And initially the observational studies um, showed that there, there seemed to be a value. If you looked at people who took vitamin D, and compared them to people who didn't take vitamin D, those who took vitamin D seemed to live longer, have a lesser rate of heart disease and a lesser rate of cancer. So the thinking was vitamin D is this cure-all. When they did the right kinds of studies, meaning randomized controlled studies, where the patient didn't decide whether or not to take the vitamin D, but really the researcher did, and then you could control for differences. And what you found was those people who were taking vitamin D in the so-called observational studies were more likely to exercise, less likely to smoke, less likely to be obese, more likely to see their doctor, and that's the reason that they had generally better health. When you controlled for all those variables so that the only variable was receiving vitamin D, Then you found out that there really was no difference for any of these things including fractures interestingly for at least you could make some biological or physiological reason for why that would be true vitamin d helps you increase the amount of calcium uh, intake from your your your, uh, stomach and intestine so that it can go into your bloodstream but again even that didn't make a difference and so i just think it's become an industry vitamin d and i think it's an unfair one um, unfair to the patient
1: Sure. And then, of course, as part of being an industry, there's the power of marketing. You mentioned in the testosterone chapter, you know, it has a handy catchphrase, you know, are you suffering from low T? And so that is memorable for the patient. Now, you mentioned Lyle Azedo, who was this, uh, you know, football player who apparently took a lot of steroids, steroid abuse, poster child, as it were, with the nickname Three Mile Lyle, kind of like Three Mile Island because he had such an explosive temper. Uh, as you may know, he actually died of a brain tumor at age 43, which he blamed in the late stages of life on taking the steroids, although that's not been agreed on. Are there other instances in the book where we really could argue for that there needs to be more truth and advertising applied effectively because there's just these handy but misleading, uh, you know, ways of, of phrasing things that are making patients very susceptible to going places they shouldn't? Well,
0: probably the biggest is, is um, the draw to antioxidants, um, okay. like vitamins A, vitamin C, vitamin E, etc. cetera, uh, minerals like selenium. Um, the, 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 if you look at people who eat diets rich in fruits and vegetables, they tend to live longer, have lesser rates of cancer and lesser rates of heart disease. And the thinking is, is that, that that's because of the antioxidants that are in those foods. And that's probably true. Um, the, 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 there's a difference between oxidation and antioxidation. So when you eat food, um, your cells take up that food, they want to convert food to energy and they do that in cells. And when they, when the cell when the cell then converts food to energy, it creates something called free radicals. And the, the process by which food is converted to energy is oxidation. So oxidation can, can uh, create something called free radicals, which can damage cell membranes and it can damage DNA and therefore increase your risk of cancer or heart disease. So the thinking is, is that then people who were eating these diets rich in antioxidants would then have an anti-oxidation or anti-free radical effect and therefore cause better health. And so people then took the next step, which we now know was not only illogical, but dangerous. They figured that, okay, well, if taking eating diets rich in fruits and vegetables, I'll just skip a step. I'll just take the antioxidants in pill form. But the problem is, is that you those, those antioxidants that you take in pill form is a very unnatural thing to do. It's not the way that, that you normally uh, see those antioxidants in food. Um and so if you take for example a thousand milligrams of vitamin C, which a lot of people do when they have colds, you would really have to eat, you know, fourteen oranges or eight cantaloupes to get that much vitamin C. And you know, your stomach's only so big for a reason you're not meant to eat eight <laughs> cantaloupes or fourteen sure. oranges. And so what then was found was that people who took who, who did these t- took supplemental antioxidants like A, C, E, actually increased their risk of cancer and heart disease because they switched the balance too much in favor of antioxidation. And you need oxi- oxidizing activity to do things like kill new cancer cells or clean out clogged arteries. Probably the best example is vitamin E. I mean, people who take mega doses of vitamin E, and this was my father. Um, you know, you would you would have to eat 1,700 almonds roughly, which are an excellent source of vitamin A, <laughs> e, to get what's in one of those one gel caps of vitamin e. A. And, and so now there's a handful of studies showing that people who take large doses of vitamin A, e, mega doses of vitamin A, e, increase the risk of prostate cancer. I mean, the data could not be clearer. If this were a regulated industry, if the if the dietary supplement industry was regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, I think that that, that vitamin E, mega vitamin E would have a black box warning on it saying, this product increases your risk of prostate cancer. But because it's not a regulated industry, most people don't know that. Actually, when those studies started to come out, the Wall Street Journal had a headline that said, is this the end of popping vitamins? And it wasn't. And the reason is, is because those studies are always trumped by marketing. I mean, they're basically, and, and one of the head of the GNC at one point said that, you know, we can we can market these studies away.
1: And he was right. OK, well, you're, you're begging me to go to a, a certain direction now because you just used the word trumped. Uh, we were talking about illogical and even dangerous interventions or approaches. Uh, so I have to bring up COVID-19 and politics and uh, everything from potentially injecting bleach to God knows what. Certainly you must have a perspective on all that's going on with COVID-19.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's a little worrisome, actually. I mean, I, I look at the FDA as a firewall. The job of the FDA is to protect the American public from products that are either unsafe or ineffective. And I think that the, the, the first warning shot, if you will, was hydroxychloroquine. Um, Donald Trump wants this pandemic to go away. I think we all want this pandemic to go away, but he's looking for something magical. I mean, he just hasn't been willing to do the hard work and hard thinking that's associated with making this pandemic go away. So he wants something magical, whether it's hydroxychloroquine or extracts from oleander leaves or bleach or UV light. He's just looking for that one quick thing to make it go away. Um, And hydroxychloroquine, I think, was the warning shot because, because he pushed the FDA into approving that product for the treatment of, of COVID-19, um, without any evidence that it worked, um, in people. And, and s- since its approval, it, um, has been tested in several prospective placebo controlled trials, and has been shown not only that it doesn't treat the disease, it doesn't even prevent the disease. What it does do for 10% of people that take it is create heart arrhythmias, which can be fatal. And so no one benefited from that. And a handful of people certainly were very much hurt by it. Um, and so, when the FDA approved that without any evidence, it was really worrisome. Now they've taken away that approval. But I, you know you see sort of playing out again yesterday with uh, convalescent plasma, the same story. The sense you're getting, I mean, the, the, the data that show that plasma, convalescent plasma clearly works is not does not exist. So the FDA had resisted approving it. And frank, frankly, Tony Fauci and, and, uh, and Francis Collins, who's head of the NIH, had both recommended not approving this drug. And so we didn't approve it, but then yesterday, the president got up on, the, on his uh, at a press conference and said that they're gonna approve it, it's a wonder drug, it's a breakthrough therapy. Um, although I think that plasma uh, can work in certain circumstances, certainly it's, it's not clear that it does, at least it's been done, shown in those studies. So, so again, the FDA sort of caved. And, you know, you wondered, since only a few days ago, they said that there wasn't evidence for this. Why were they suddenly saying that, that they were going to approve it? And I think there weren't any new studies that were done. It's just a, sort of a cherry picking of existing studies. And it just worries me that, that this could actually eventually apply to vaccines where the, EP, where the uh, FDA would again be willing to sort of bend over backwards to please the president, which is not their charge. Their charge is to protect the American people, not to please the president of the United States.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I couldn't agree more, but let's, let's move into, uh, I guess I'll I'll call it idealistic reforms and plausible reforms, because we've got a lot of 800 pound gorillas around here. I won't say the president weighs quite that much, but obviously politics, farm industry, influence of marketing. I mean, these are heavy hitter players who can warp and affect things in ways that they're looking for the outcomes that are profitable to them. What, can and should be done. I mean, I I know you've got 15 cases here in the book and we can go to those, we can go to COVID-19, but what what are best practices that really people can keep in mind here or that should be affected through our our institutions?
0: Well, I I think that from the standpoint of the the patient or the consumer, um, the purpose of the book is not to make you your own doctor. The purpose of the book is to educate you so that you have a better understanding of the the disease process that you're interested in, or you're inter- or the disease process of your children that you're interested in, so that when you go to the doctor, you can be more informed and you can ask better questions and you can b- be a better advocate for your health. That's the whole goal of this book. Um, it's not to sort of uh, engender distrust in the medical profession. It's just just it just asks you really to take a little more critical eye of 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 how um, of the the medicines that you might take. That, that's the whole purpose of the book. I mean, there are some things that we do that uh, are unnecessarily and potentially dangerous. And so you sh- you can at least be a better consumer here.
1: Yeah. And, and I took it that way. In fact, earlier in my career, I was at the New, Jer- New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs and was trying to write regulations for a variety of industries, including the chiropractors who uh, were, you know, at least some people alleging fairly guilty of overutilization of services. And there was a lot of back and forth on that, so I, you know i 've been in some of those political fights over you know what 's a fair and good practice. Uh, I took it very much as a book trying to inform patients who you know are looking to trust their doctors they want to overcome things that have inhibited uh, the quality of their lives uh, to the extent that we can inform them better uh, and they can be a good ally to the doctor and not push on them uh, solutions that the doctors know aren't probably as, as strong as they could be. Let's go back to the doctors, though, before we wrap this up. You know, obviously, they also have things that can weigh on them. Uh, You know, they they get uh, benefits from the pharmaceutical companies if they, you know, agree to prescribe this or do that. What are reasonable standards and ways in which we can look to the patient, the, the doctor's behavior, rather?
0: Right. I I think that, you know, you're just never going to eliminate, I think, the interest, the the impact of marketing on um, physician decision making. Uh, It's just, uh, uh, you know, the companies are interested in selling products and they have access to physicians. That's never going to change. I mean, I think the best you can do as a consumer is to just be better informed. And it's hard to get informed well. I mean, most people turn to the internet for information and the internet is a source of excellent and awful information so i'm not sure that's the (laughs) best place to get because it's hard to know what the good sites are and what the bad sites are although i would argue that the good sites generally don't sell things Uh, and and, you know they're usually university-based or uh, hospital-based websites so i don't know it just but you know people are so influenced by the you know i mean you know a lot of the my i mean i'm I'm a uh, infectious disease specialist who spent most of his career working on a rotavirus vaccine um, so I'm a co-inventor of a rotavirus vaccine. That was that's my professional accomplishment. But um, and so I I spent written a lot of books about vaccines and uh, and anti, the anti-vaccine movement. And um, you know it's just so hard to get people not to be influenced by such bad such misinformation.
1: Sure. And uh, the, the marketing simpler and easier to take with you know fewer caveats sometimes than the studies. But uh, yes, in my case, if the Mayo Clinic has some publication, you know on a particular treatment. Um, that's a good place that I, I start, certainly. Um, is there a, a final parting word you'd like to offer, advice, uh, perspective? You've been in this field a long time. You've learned a lot. Uh, you've uh, argued for a lot of uh, reforms and best practices. Is there a parting word you want to offer here?
0: Well, we do live longer than we used to. And we live 30 years longer than we did 100 years ago. And the reason is because of scientific and medical advances. So, so I think science and medicine has worked for us. I, I do think there are those instances, though, where we do too much, uh, where we think that, that, uh, that technology or science is, is always the answer, and that the more we do, the better, when often the less, there are many times anyway, where the less that we do, it, the better. And I think that's my take-home lesson. Sometimes doing nothing is doing something.
1: Okay, so um, thank you very much, Paul. This has uh, been Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight with Paul Offord. Uh, This has been episode number 17, $3.3 trillion of greed, fear, and inertia. Paul's book, once again, is called Overkill. If you want to check out other episodes or my books or appearances on other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at www.sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Paul by chance, you can email it to me at dhill at Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Uh, we've been talking about misguided and overused medical treatments. Uh, this is a little out of date since Chekhov. A- Anton Chekhov is from the 19th century as a playwright and short story writer, but he did have a rather memorable statement. He said, when a lot of remedies are suggested for a disease, that means it cannot be cured. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Okay, that should do it. I, that was great, Dan. Thank you very much. I love that ending. Um, oh, thank, thank you very you. much. That was a lot of fun.
0: I, I'm sorry about all the uh, problems. It's funny, every time my, my computer kept shutting down, every time we stopped the ZenCaster.
1: Yeah, well, I'm exactly at the same point. So there, there probably is something there, but you were great guest. It's a really good book. Uh, I'm always in favor of solid data. I actually challenged the market research industry in my case by bringing in facial coding to try to capture nonverbal signals, which can frankly be a lot more honest than the claptrap that people say for money uh, as a study participant. So uh, I've pushed long and hard to make reforms in my particular industry with a lot of pushback. No, no one threatened my life in my case, but uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've challenged vested interests and believe me, I've I've had some people get really upset with me. All right. Dan, thank you very much, I appreciate it. Sure, good luck. Take care.
0: Thank you, bye-bye.